Mac Jones is ripped. Matt Patricia is calling plays. The Celtics are title favorites. And The Ringer has a new Boston show. I'm Brian Barrett, host of Off the Pike, the show covering all things Boston sports. I'll have shows multiple times a week covering your favorite teams and with your favorite Ringer and local guests. Plus, maybe Bill will stop by to rant about the Sox. Follow Off the Pike with me, Brian Barrett, now on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Armorall. When you want the best for your car, preparation is everything. That's why teams like Oracle Red Bull Racing use Armorall to prep their team vehicles. From interior cleaning and protectant wipes to car wash and wheel and tire cleaner, Armorall, America's number one trusted auto appearance brand, has what it takes to keep the two-time defending champions looking their best inside and out. And get this, now through May 31st, you can get $5 back when you spend $20 prepping your car like the Oracle Red Bull Racing Team. All you have to do is upload your receipt to Armorall's website after you buy. Visit armorall.com for program details and redemption. Terms apply. Armorall chosen by champions. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. It is the Ring Up One Show, part of the Ring Up Podcast Network. I am Kevin Clark. How about some news? Nate Saunders from ESPN, our buddy, a recurring guest at this point, joins us. He actually knows things. He talks to people in the paddock. Uh, so we brought him in to do, basically, uh, a full sort of grid-wide news dump. Um, I really enjoyed this. I learned a ton. We go through the exceedingly long F1 calendar. Uh, next year and what it all means. The sprint races have been doubled. Uh, and then some driver movement talk, especially with the American drivers and Daniel Ricardo, who at this point is an honorary American. Here's Nate. All right, our buddy Nate Saunders is here. He is on ESPN's Unlapped podcast, a rival podcast. Nate, what's going on, buddy? Hey, man, how you doing? Thanks for the plug. I, I didn't want us to be pitched as rivals, but, you know, I guess technically in the world of podcasting, that is what people are going to say, right? Everybody's got a target. Everybody's got a target on their back. Yeah, I mean, you're Toto Wolf and I'm Christian, Christian Horner, that means, if that's, if that's the quote you're going with. Uh, we're we're, we're going we're gonna to workshop that. You're Gunther Steiner. Yeah, I don't want to be Horner, actually. That's a good point. Uh, <laughs> um, all right, so there's so much to get to. Right before we started recording, uh, you said the FIA just sent out an update that there are going to be six sprint races as opposed to three last year. Uh, I, am, I have so many questions about this. This kind of folds into the fact that it's going to be 24 races next year. Biggest calendar ever. Um, there are rumors that could even grow at some point. You know, you've heard rumors that it might get to 30 at some point, and you just don't know where, where the line is because at some point it fundamentally changes the sport. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, you even, you add NFL games and the way teams use rotations and, and players and, and strategy, it changes. Um, if you shorten the NBA season, like it would change everything. Like, so for me, uh, I just think it starts to fundamentally change the sport. But let's start with the sprint thing, because I think that there's um, generally a a push to maybe bring in the casual fan. Hey, more racing is a good thing, et cetera, et cetera. But at some point, especially for us who kind of watch every practice session, all that stuff, it gets to be too much. 
Um, what's the line for you and why is the FIA doing this, Nate? Well, this is really interesting because this has actually been an ongoing battle between the FIA and F1. So F1 okay. have been super keen to have more sprint races. You know, the, the research they've done around this has been that the overwhelmingly sprint races have been popular. Now, that's quite an interesting thing for them to say because I think both of us have had conversations with people who maybe haven't thought the same thing. But the interesting thing was there that the FIA, the guys that set the rules and obviously set that calendar. So there was a bit of a, a back and forth between them this year. You know, some of it came down to, you know, will these will these events be paying more money to to host a sprint yeah. race? Obviously, for for events, it's a huge thing because they they like the idea of hosting a sprint race. You know, it gives them a reason to get fans in the door on the Friday for qualifying. You get a race on Saturday, and then you you get another race on Sunday. So, from a promoting point of view, a lot of events mm-hmm. have found it to be, you know, in terms of making money, uh, a pretty good thing. So, there's there's all these different things at play here. But you're right; it fundamentally changes the the, the makeup of a race weekend and. I think one of the concerns people have had is does a sprint race make the whole weekend better? It might make, sometimes it does mix the grid up enough for a Sunday to be fun, but sometimes the sprint race itself isn't actually that good, is it? Because we see that one guy just goes off into the front and then, you know, everyone's on the same tire, so nothing really changes. So it's interesting that they've gone, they've gone, basically doubled it from this year. There's three, we've got one more left at the Brazilian Grand Prix in November. We've had two already. So there'll be six of them next year. And like you say, they're, 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 it's not like they're short of space on the calendar to, to, to put these now. Um, but I think that, you know, as we go on and as we get more and more races, I think they're going to have to, there's going to have to be a point of difference at a lot of these races. Mm-hmm. So we could shift towards having even more of these going forward, I think. Oh my God. Okay. I Listen, I, I think it's a good idea in, in short bursts, but I don't want 24 sprint races. Like I, I it also just changes the makeup, like qualifying becomes less important i mean like the things that 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 there are people who are who have who have um gone into f1 and gotten into f1 with a specialization in certain things that, that maybe become devalued over a longer period of time which i think there better be a really good reason if you're going to do that you know i mean like again i don't do the nfl analogy again but it's like you know special teams becomes less and less and less of a big deal every single year and it's like well there's some people who who make their bones on special teams um and so i it's just if you're going to fundamentally change the sport there better be a good reason for it and like selling tickets in um, in, in certain venues because you can't get that exciting of a race is not one of them to me. Yeah, and I think there is, a, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that um, this all actually stems from the fact that the, the original talking point that Formula One had on this was, can we have reverse grids at some races? Right. At the time, it was Mercedes were like, absolutely not. We can't have a reverse, a reverse grid sprint race where you effectively take the championship, you know, flip the order, you have a sprint race in the, in, in, on the Saturday, and then that creates the order of the Sunday. I think that would have been amazing. That would have created real jeopardy every race weekend. One of the issues you've got here is that I think drivers sometimes go on the side of being a bit too cautious at these, you know, these sprint yes. races. They don't go all out for an over, overtake, which is what F1 wanted. Um, but it is interesting. You know, it seems that for quite a lot, a lot of fans, they enjoy sitting down on a Saturday and seeing something competitive like that. Personally, I'm, I love a qualifying session. You know, I think there's some great yes. drama in qualifying. And um, I think that you're absolutely right. You can kind of dilute that to a point where qualifying loses some of that that aura to it. And obviously there are some places where qualifying is just magnificent. I mean, the race this weekend, for example, is a place where qualifying is really special. So it is, it's tough. And again, we'll come back to this point every single time with it. When you have 24 races in a season, this is one of the issues you run into. Um, all right. Where, what is the future of the F1 schedule? Because there were rumors that they may not stop at three with, American races, 
And that depends, obviously, on the venue. There are rumors that they want to get into different markets. And, I, you know, it's, it's funny because it's a, it's a real be careful what you wish for thing because you and I will sometimes text about, oh, they can't take Monaco off the calendar. They can't take Spa off the calendar. Those are the crown jewels. And it's like, cool, they're going to keep them, but they're also going to add three races in a bunch of different countries, right? And so it's a re- like there's a push and a pull there where, yeah, we're going to get those European kind of crown jewel races, but then we're also going to get just a, a, an extremely long calendar. Um, in let's say five years, what does that look like? Well, that's a really good question, man, because at the moment, the rules that F1 teams have all signed up to, the Concord Agreement caps the season at 24 races. So you often hear Stefano Domenicali say, we won't get any bigger. You know, it, the, the season can't get bigger than this. But of course, those that's a contractual agreement all the teams are bound by. And with all contracts, the next contract looks different to the one that is existing. With F1 bringing in as much money as it is right now, I can totally see them changing that limit and saying, look, why don't we push that up to 26? Why don't we push that up to 27? And obviously there are so many things in play. There's the human aspect to it. You know, you have so many people you know, working at these teams who are already strained this year in a 22 race season. Um, you know, I think you, people are saying within F1, they wouldn't be surprised if over the off season, you get a lot more people asking for factory-based jobs. They'll say, look, I've- yes, I Yes, I, I saw a couple of tweets like this, just, but yeah, yeah. And I've heard those conversations. You know, I've, I've talked to people who I've known in F1 for a long time and they're just like, man, I can't do this anymore, you know, because it's it's all or nothing. You know, Formula One is is that kind of thing. You either, you're either part of the, the race team or you're part of the factory team. It's very diff- very rare that you're kind of between the two. So it's really interesting. I think what the, the first obvious thing Formula One has to do, I think I, I think you tweeted about it as well. And I think a few people like, noticed this very quickly. It's just how unorganized the calendar next year looks. Yeah. Yep. Qatar as a standalone race. You've got Australia as a standalone race. You you go you go Austin, uh, Mexico, then Brazil, then everyone flies back for a week and then flies out to Vegas. It's just like, you know, from all kinds of perspectives, a human perspective, environmental perspective, that doesn't work. So I think what we will shift towards over the next few years is that will look more and more geographically sensible. You know, you'll have races paired together. I don't I think that the age of having a standalone race is almost is is surely almost done purely because you know there's not enough time in the year to, to have standalone sure. races. Standalone races are actually, you know, for the environment are pretty awful. If everyone's flying out to Australia for four days, flying back again, that doesn't really chime with F1's message of of um, sustainability. So right. I think what we'll start to see is things grouped together. It's already kind of happening. At the start of the year, it seems to be Bahrain and Saudi, uh, which is interesting because Abu Dhabi in their contract always used to like to say that they didn't want to be near the Bahrain race because of geographical kind of politics of that and they didn't, you know they didn't want to share the same space <laughs> yeah yeah there are other races that say look i don't we don't want to be near near this race because we think that fans if they were offered the choice between the two they might pick them over us and that's where the calendar the guys that put the calendar together have a real real problem but i think it's going to i mean 24 now is the norm you know i don't think it's going to come back there are so many places no. that want a race and you're right about the crown jewels the reason belgium and and a lot of these other places are kind of at risk is as much as they might be iconic circuits, they just don't have the money that somewhere like Vegas has and can throw at F1 and say, look, we will literally race down the most famous street in America, maybe even the most famous street in the world, and we'll do it for 10 years and we'll commit to a contract. A lot of these older venues can't do that. So Formula One has realized, maybe to the detriment of classic venues, that it doesn't matter if it doesn't continue with Spa, doesn't matter if it doesn't continue with you know the French Grand Prix or the German Grand Prix, because they can make a lot of money elsewhere. So a very interesting point coming up now. And I think a lot of F1 fans want to see the classic races stay. Um, but I think it's going to be a talking point for the next few years because you'll notice that the the, the races getting the long deals are your Vegas's, your Bahrain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Miami. Getting like 
yeah, Miami as well. Yeah, that, that's a good one as well. Um, but then Spa, Monaco, when they do get extensions, it's like, we've given them a two-year deal. We've given yeah. them a one-year deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of a, you're here until until you're not. And, and, and there's a ton of, of run-up to it where it's like, I don't know. I don't know. Are we? Are you going to get a two-year deal? And meanwhile, it's like, hey, Miami, here's 50 years. You're going to be underwater by the end of this deal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it was the same with Spa, you know, the whole the whole talk around that. It was the same with Monaco. And, and we didn't even find out about Monaco having an extension until F1 released the calendar for next year, which yeah. they released ahead of the planned kind of release because it was meant to come after they'd announced Monaco has a three-year deal. So it shows you that, like, you know, that, that's the way these things kind of come together. But yeah, uh, a really interesting time for Formula One because you could get to the point, you said five years from now, I mean, five years from now, under current contracts, you wouldn't have Monaco. You know, they would need a second contract from from now. Belgium, a bunch. Of, I think I think Mons is always in you know similarly precarious situation. And as great as it is that we've seen this boom in America, especially and seeing three races there, every time you add a new race, you're dropping one of those classics off. You know, if, if yeah. Kyle Army had come on this year, I think Spa would have been the one to drop off. That seemed to be come the one man. people pointed at. So as good as a return to South Africa would be. You know, you look at it and you think Spa Frankersham, you have to keep a circuit like that on the calendar. This is just it's just iconic. And you know, those things matter, I think, to to fans. So it's difficult to it's difficult to say, but definitely on that twenty-four races, I can see that going up. Maybe not in the near term, but once they get the chance to change that rule, yeah. First chance they get, I think they will. I so I don't know a ton about the Concord Agreement. Obviously, it's it's the deal that the teams have to sign, basically establishing certain parameters of the sport. And it runs from 2021 till 2025. Um, two questions. Number one, like how married are they to that? Can they can they do addendums in the middle of the Concord Agreement? I mean, is it like the CBA or or is it is it are there not going to be more than 24 races in the next three years? Yeah, it's pretty ironclad. I mean, it would take they would have to completely renegotiate the Concord Agreement for that. Um, and as far as I'm aware, they've never they've never changed the terms of it. That just basically keeps rolling over, and the teams will commit to that if a new team comes in. They obviously adopt the terms of the existing Concord Agreement that is there, yeah. and it, it does it, it deals with everything. So TV rights, you know, prize money, uh, the amount of races on the calendar, you know, all these kind of things. So it's very difficult for them to budge on one of those things they've agreed on because you have to basically tear up the whole deal. So I think until twenty twenty five, the twenty four cap is safe, but I I just can't imagine Formula One keeping to that from that point on because, like I said. Like Lewis Hamilton said at the start of last season or the start of the um, COVID-19 season, cash is king. And we're seeing cash that more and more with Formula One. Cash is king. Um, all right. Let's get to the actual races here uh, on, the, on the, the, the 23, the 23 race calendar. Um, the last non-24 race calendar. Uh, it's Singapore next. Um, do you ever go to Asia for these races? No, I don't. My colleague Lawrence Edmondson goes um, and a colleague of mine, uh, Jake Michaels from ESPN yeah. Australia goes to that. It's always been a, it's always been, it's always one of, you know, I've loved, I would have loved to have gone to Singapore, Japan, you know, they're both two races that I think in their own very different ways have become very special on the calendar and Singapore just looks incredible. The funny thing with Singapore is everyone flies out from Europe and they're, they're told to stay on the European time zone because everything's in the evening. So you're ah. staying on the European time zone. It's one of the reasons why the night race first made sense to Bernie when he took it out there. He said, not only can we have a spectacular race under lights, it will be exactly the, the, the same normal time zones as a European race for the you know the the kind of the the heartland of Formula One, if you like, the, in, in Europe. So it is funny that you've got all these guys staying up, you know, they're they're working on their car, etc. They finish early hours of the morning, and they're like, all right, well, it, in my body clock, it's still nine p.m. So let's stay up for a few more hours. So it does seem to be a funny one like that. 
Amazing. Um, what are the track characteristics here? What do we need to know uh, going into this weekend, just from a pure nuts and bolts standpoint, Nate? Yeah, this is, I think drivers all kind of say this is one of their favorite circuits. One of the most challenging, without a doubt, for a lot of reasons. It's 23 corners, and anyone who's played it on, you know, one of the. Oh, buddy, buddy, I get off track and I do not get back on track. Yeah. That is one where you turn damage off straight away, <laughs> I found. Um, but it's, yeah, you know, it, it, it's one of those racetracks, I think, that is. We get a lot of circuits now that are, are kind of criticized for not being challenging enough. Lots of runoff errors, stuff like this. Singapore is so demanding on the drivers. You know, you make the slightest mistake. It's similar to Monaco, you know, and, and you can ruin your whole race weekend. And on top of it, if you look at where Monaco is in the calendar and what the weather's usually like there, in Singapore, you have this insane humidity. So the drivers, I mean, this is a race where drivers, sometimes their drinks bottle will stop working and they'll almost have to be pulled out of their car because they're so exhausted at the end of it. Um, so the humidity plays a big factor. That's a big, big issue for the drivers. And of course, for the tires, keeping the tires in the right window for the right race. So for, for the whole race. So there's all these different things. And the great thing it's been, it's been, the tarmac's been relayed since we were last there, which adds a bit of a question mark to it. Obviously these are public roads normally. Um, so yeah, big question marks and Singapore, Singapore didn't get a race on in 2020. It didn't manage to come back last year. So there is a quite an exciting feeling coming back to this because, you know, we, a lot of new circuits that join maybe don't, you know, tickle the boxes for excitement, but I think Singapore really has established itself as one of the, one of the most popular for fans and for drivers. Like it just kind of has everything you want it, you want it to have. How dare you take a shot at Miami? Not being that exciting. How dare you? Well, we need more than one race, man. So maybe next year we'll make a verdict. The mistake generator didn't work. The mistake generator didn't work. The problem with Miami... Go ahead. There's no fake marina. See, this is Marina Bay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no fake marina. This is a literal marina in Singapore. Do you think that's Monaco's problem? Is that there's real water? Yeah, that might be it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. F1 was like, is it what... I think we're onto something. They were like, no, no, no. We, we're used to these fake ones now. There's actually real boats there. How do they get in? What? How do they get there? They don't get towed in? Yeah. Um, all right. So let's get to the future of the grid. Uh, this is, I mean, honestly, the last couple of weeks seems like a, a viral advertisement for IndyCar. Um, because that's all we're talking about is, is Colton Herta and then kind of by extension, other American drivers. Now there's buzz that Logan Sargent could be in a seat next year. Um, there's a lot of talk about the super license process that I want to get to, um, handicap it for us. What are the chances that an American driver is an F1 in 2023, Nate? So I think they're good, but I don't think as we've seen, it's with Herta. I think that Logan Sargent has got a real shot with Williams. I think he's, he's a really strong candidate. I know the team are fond of him. I think Nick DeVries has become an interesting candidate there, but I can actually see him going away from Williams, you know, maybe to Alpha Tauri. Um, and Sargent's Ooh. a really interesting case. You know, he's, he's, in, he's in the Williams Academy. He's impressed them there. He's won a race in F2 this year. He's doing a practice session in Austin. So that would be the perfect time to announce him is around that weekend. There's going to be a lot of buzz around him. He's going to be doing a lot of media. And from what I understand within the team, they're all, you know, um, they're very keen on that. You know, the owners, you know, the, the owners are, you know, they're, 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 they're a business, you know, they, they can see the benefit in promoting an American driver at this point in Formula One's um, kind of history. So um, I think he's got a good shot. I mean, De Vries and his performance in Italy, I think, basically put everything on hold because De Vries now, we all thought it was going to be Danny Rick, didn't we, who kind of held the mm -hmm. keys to the market. But I think De Vries actually kind of holds those at the moment because, you can get this young guy in, you can tie him down for a few years. And I think people have realized, you know, a few years ago when De Vries left Formula 2 and there wasn't a seat for him, a lot of people said, oh, that's a shame because it's clearly good enough to be an F1. But we just assumed, hey, probably one of those, just another driver that's kind of been lost to it and has gone to IndyCar or has gone on to Formula E or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, 
So yeah, he's getting the second shot again now. But I, I, I think they're good. I, I wouldn't want to put a you know percentage on it. From what I heard a few a few months ago, Sargent was really in the in the front running for that seat. They thought mm. we've got we've got Albon tied down to the other seat. We've got you know a guy we know exactly where we are with Albon. And in Sargent, you can you can give him you can, you can give him a year, a bit like what Haas did with Mick Schumacher. You can say, look, this first year is going to be a bit of a write off because the car's not going to be super competitive. You can learn, you know, you can make mistakes, and you're away from the front of the grid. And then hopefully we get better, and so do you at the same time. So, but I think the Vries is kind of just complicated the picture. But but don't get me wrong, Sergeant is right there in the mix for that seat. So, um, fingers crossed for him. Can you explain something to me? Because when I was looking up Sergeant, it was interesting because first of all, he's third in F two this year, obviously, um, but he is outscoring his teammate, uh, who is I think seventh in in the F two standings. Is it like F one where they really do? I mean, you you can make apples to apples comparisons with your teammate in F two. Is is it, is it the same or is it a little bit different because resources might be allocated differently, Nate? Yeah, no, it is seen like that, and um, I think more and more the the teammate comparison in F two is becoming really big because especially when especially if you're you know, a, a Williams batch driver, if right. they look at you and they're like, he's, you know, he's not even beating the guy in the same team as him. It's immediately a big black mark on your record. It's, it's even more so if, if, if a, an F1 team has two junior products in the same team, they right. then can make a like for like comparison between those two guys as well. So that is becoming quite common. Yeah. I'm, uh, yeah. I mean, the, the DeVries thing is fascinating and I'm, I'm intrigued to see where that goes. I asked this question, uh, a couple of weeks ago and I, I want to ask you as well, like, how many kind of so let's let's put Nate, Nick DeVries. Obviously, he's a very talented driver. He has a lot of experience, but of the kind of Formula E, we'll throw. I mean, experienced F two drivers. Uh, you know, guys who have been in you know reserve drivers that that kind of mix, right? Of which they're probably you know. 10, 15, 20, like what percentage of those would do what Nick DeVries did? Is this just an opportunity thing or is this just a, he showed these actually much better than we gave it credit for? Like what's, what's the, what's the percentage of, of drivers who are in his genre of driver who would perform like that in a Williams? It's a great question, man, because I think that that is kind of, that's actually what his performance has opened up is like, right. How many people have slipped through the net in the last few years? Um, because you know the, the age-old debate in F1 is: is this the 20 best drivers in the world? Right. It's definitely the 10 best are definitely in F1. But I yeah. thought maybe maybe the 10 below that. You know, it, it, there's it, it, the, the, the t- 10 best drivers, and then about the six best sons of billionaires. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, I think I think De Vries is in a small group of, of drivers that could have jumped in and done that straight away. You know, he's there's always been a big you know a, a lot said about how good he was. Um, you know, especially in junior careers, you know, guys like Russell and Albon, they raced against him before Formula One, always said he was a good driver. And it did seem with him that maybe mentally he wasn't in the right place a few years ago to kind of capitalize on the chances he had. I think, I think it was Russell or Leclerc said recently that De Vries used to just be obsessed about Formula One. That's all he used to think about. And yeah. Was how am I going to get into Formula One? How am I going to get into Formula One? And it maybe affected his performances in, in other categories. Mm-hmm. He's obviously had a chance to now go away and maybe even thought maybe my, my shot's gone now. You know, and that sometimes, can be a weight off a driver's shoulders. So I think of drivers that have left Formula 2, I think there's a small handful. You know, you're probably talking 10%, but there's definitely lots of what-if cases. You know, Stoffel Van Dorn. I mean, you, you mentioned the opportunity. Stoffel Van Dorn, yeah. Um, De Vries was... De Vries seized the opportunity brilliantly, but it was it was kind of lucky that he was the guy there, you know, because th- these teams often call on different reserve drivers during, during race weekends. Mercedes have different reserve drivers. So it could have been that Albon had fallen ill at a race that Vandorn was in town for Mercedes and then Vandorn right. gets that shot. And then are we suddenly saying, oh, well, Stoffel Vandorn, you know, he, 
he never really had a fair shake because he was at McLaren when they their car was you know just awful and he was just and Alonso was the teammate yeah and he was being beaten by one of you know a generational driver in in in, in Alonso and suddenly then we're talking like oh you know Van Dorn's back so opportunity is a big part of it but you know there's the age-old thing it's you know Brady when Bledsoe goes down it's one thing getting the opportunity but it's another thing it's another thing actually taking it and that's not me comparing Nick DeVries to Tom Brady I'm not saying he's going to go and win seven more championships but he has you know he has just out of nowhere kind of given himself this opportunity so um, it's really great to see and it I think we'll get into the super license chat it's why I think it's important that F1 always has this kind of steady stream of opportunities for guys away from Formula One because it's very easy to just think there's only 20 people that can do this in the world. And that's not true. Yeah. I mean, the Van Dorn thing, when, when they did the, the McLaren docuseries the year before, if you remember, they did drive to survive. And I found that docuseries fascinating. It's where I first learned about kind of Zach Brown, the inner workings. And even like, I was so new. I'd only watched it for like 18 months. It's where you first kind of learn about, uh, you know, the, the, the basically the supply chain between a, a team like or a, 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 a engine maker like Honda giving it to McLaren and, and almost the lack of the lack of checks and balances where they didn't even like check quality control. And they're like, Oh cool. The engine doesn't start. Like it's a fascinating docuseries. But what I'm going to bring up is that they did obviously did the background on Van Dorn and you realize, and maybe this is an obvious point to everybody, but they were talking about how like, you know, in, when he was 14 years old, they do the carding and like Van Dorn was so good in Europe that you, it was like, they made a different sound. He made a different sound because he was driving so smoothly. Right. And I remember that. And I, I think his dad is the one who said that, but, but it was just like, he was so much better than everybody else. And then he gets to F1 and, and he had a great junior career. He gets to F1, as you said, bad car, bad teammate to have in the first year and not from what we saw, not a great, as we would call it, uh, not a great locker room. Uh, in, 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 in U.S. terms um, and uh, changing room, as, as we would say, maybe in Europe. Um, but I, uh, yeah, you know, I can, I'm, I'm versatile. I can do all sports. Um, no, and, uh, and, and so I, I, to get flushed out that quickly, I mean, that's, that's the scarcity thing, right? And that's why, I mean, the, the, the thing is about sprint races to br- kind of broaden this point, is every the the reason college football and NFL and all of some of these sports are so popular is because of the scarcity part, right? And the fact that there's 20 drivers, 20 seats cannot be expanded. This is why I didn't want. Maybe there's a case to be made that maybe there could be an 11th team to maybe put pressure on teams to qualify better or whatever. But 20 cars on the grid is perfect. 20 drivers on the grid is perfect. And the way that that uh, the current kind of F1 schedule setup is perfect. Scarcity is good. And the less you, and the more you drain it, whether that's more races, more drivers, whatever, um, is a bad thing. And the thing I like about F1, but it's also the tragic part of F1, is that a guy like Stefan Van Dorn gets one shot. And if he doesn't get there, he basically never gets another look again. Yeah, absolutely. And I think Van Dorn is, is actually the, the perfect example of that. When he came in, I was, uh, it was in my first few years of really starting to, cover a lot of races you know on the ground regularly and one thing i mean you you would have seen it when you're in miami there's you always hear there's a buzz in the media center about you know junior drivers you know different drivers yeah 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 degrees. the buzz around van dorn was unbelievable like every time he was racing i was like i gotta watch van dorn i gotta watch van dorn he got a debut once because i think um, alonso couldn't race the season before he actually raced full-time and there was just this great hype about him and slowly what you saw happen to him was you could just see every time you spoke to him, his confidence was just shot a little bit more. 
and before you know by the time he finished with McLaren he was a shell of himself you know the, he, there was no confidence there he he didn't seem to enjoy being in formula 1 and he's gone and to his credit he's gone to formula e and you know he's 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 done very very well there but like you say that door is shut and, and had circumstances been slightly different maybe he gets that opportunity but um there's lots of guys i mean Callum Eilert is a is a guy who's just yep. in the car you know super super talented was always kind of there on the cusp the 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 pieces didn't fall for him in the right way and now it seems like, all right, well, Eilert's just on in IndyCar. There's also Rosencrist in IndyCar. Yep. So, I mean, I mean, and even guys like Ericsson and Alex Rossi who won the Indy yeah. 500. You know, they were in cars where maybe they couldn't show what they could do, but they've gone to they've gone to America and they've been competitive. So, yeah, I think the scarcity thing is it, it's a good and a bad thing for Formula One. It's great because it does feel it does feel like the elite. It does feel like you've got to be super special to get into it. But there are plenty of people who just for whatever reason, you know, it's like wrong place, wrong time. Um, but um, but yeah, it's why it's such a nice story when a guy like DeVries or even a guy like Albon gets a second yeah. chance because second chances in F1 are pretty rare. Pretty rare. Uh, the fascinating thing to me about, you know, the Ericsson win in Indy this year, I think that's such an important step in when we're talking about IndyCar and F1 and their relationship. And, and we've all talked about whether or not IndyCar should be threatened by F1 going forward. Um, and, and it's an interesting debate we can put aside for a second. But when somebody like Ericsson wins... Everybody in F1 is talking about it. They're all on social media saying congrats. And then everybody the next week gets those questions. You know, even like, I think even Max got a question like, hey, man, you ever want to run the Indy 500? Like, it is such a boon to have those F1 guys in the mix in Indy. And his answer, I think, pissed a lot of people off in Indy. Yeah, yeah. He was just like, I don't, I know, it's insane. I don't want to do it. You know, he's like, I've got no, I think he was basically as categorical as Max Verstappen can be. He was like, I don't want to do it. I, I, I get that. I understand that. Like, I, there's, I, the thing is, is that there's a press conferences, especially you, know, you see this all the time, where it's like the uh, a local guy or someone who just has running a very specific story throws a question in, and there's like a default to be nice if you're, you know, like they're just begging for like a Lewis Hamilton thing, whatever. Like there was a guy in Miami who was like begging. He's actually related to Indy. He was begging someone to give him a quote about how like Indy should be back on the F1 calendar, and like so, yeah, yeah. And some people were like, some really nice drivers were like, yeah, like that would be that. You know, it's definitely a crown jewel, whatever. It's definitely like the heartbeat of American motorsports, whatever, whatever you want to call it. And then there were some. I think it was Lewis was just like, yeah, there's just not much going on there, like. Sorry, man. <laughs> I don't want to tell you. <laughs> and so it's always funny. It's it's always funny when you get these like these big picture like, hey, everyone in Rice IndyCar, and it's like you know, I'm sure Vettel will give you like three minutes on how he would love you know you know if it ever worked out, he'd love to do Indy 500. He remembers watching it on TV when you know et, et cetera et cetera one, and like some guys just like nah, I'm good. Happens happens in every sport. Yeah, but I think Button was the same as well when he retired. Everyone was trying to get to the bottom of like, where are you going to race next? And he was like, I don't, I, I don't know. I probably just won't do anything. Yeah. Like, but you must. <laughs> You're going to do Le Mans? He, he did Le Mans. He did Le Mans. He announced it a couple months later. I think he was doing it. But even then, he was like, yeah, someone offered it to me. And I thought this would be fun. And, you know, I, I've done it. You know, he's done a few little things here and there. But he on Indy was like, no chance. Like, I don't. He's like, those guys, he's like, those guys, massive respect. But I don't want to, I don't want any part of just driving around, you know, that fast around with a wall just next to you. I don't think he. A hundred percent. And also it's a different, I mean, it's over the course of a season. I mean, you, it, it is, it is different than, I mean, endurance racing is obviously its own animal, but it's different than an IndyCar where you're, you're going to be a cog in an entire season and a team that's together every single week. I mean, that, it's just a completely different, it's not, a, it's not the one-off. I think sometimes people imagine it to be, 
um, because of the, the tr- triple crown freezing or whatever. And funnily enough, I actually, I saw Ericsson when I was checking out my hotel after Miami, I saw him, he was in the same hotel as me. And, um, he was wow, fancy, fancy. And he was like, he was like, Hey, and I was like, Oh, like, you know, it's always nice when an athlete you, you haven't spoken to yeah, yeah, yeah. sees you and, and, and recognize you. So we were just chatting and, um, he was waiting for his card to come. And I was like, Oh, uh, Indy's next up for you, man. How are you feeling? He was like, yeah, feeling good. He's like the first, the first over race I did was terrifying. He said, you know, the whole time I was just waiting to hit the wall. You know, I was like, this is awful. But he said, once you get into it and get used to it, you become more confident. But it was just interesting hearing him say, you know, his, how his mindset had, had just changed from being an F1 driver. Everything's about Formula One to being like, I'm actually really enjoying IndyCar competitive. You know, I can win races if I, you know, if, if, if I have a good weekend, I can win. Rather than if I have a good weekend, I finish 17th and I beat my teammate. It's now I've actually won a race. I've actually won the, the you know, the most famous race in the world. This episode is brought to you by Armorall. When you want the best for your car, preparation is everything. That's why teams like Oracle Red Bull Racing use Armorall to prep their team vehicles. From interior cleaning and protectant wipes to car wash and wheel and tire cleaner, Armorall, America's number one trusted auto appearance brand, has what it takes to keep the two-time defending champions looking their best inside and out. And get this, now through May 31st, you can get $5 back when you spend $20 prepping your car like the Oracle Red Bull Racing Team. All you have to do is upload your receipt to Armorall's website after you buy. Visit armorall.com for program details and redemption. Terms apply. Armorall, chosen by champions. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, There was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things. But at least I knew they were there just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side by side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. All right, uh, let's get to the super license thing because there's been some some debate over the past couple of weeks about whether or not the super license is actually doing its job, keeping Colton Herta out. The argument, you know, the uh, there's a couple of, of of arguments Red Bull tried to make. One of them being that the Indy Light season should have counted, and I think there was a there was a, a debate about whether or not some of the COVID. Uh, there should be accommodations made for some of the COVID seasons, um, but it doesn't look like it doesn't look like it's going to happen. Uh, to me, 
to me, if you're keeping Colton Herta out of the sport, your super license rules are too strict. Uh, do most people in F1 agree with me, Nate? Yeah, I think I think people have, have accepted that the super license the super license system is flawed in terms of how IndyCar is weighted. I'm actually a big fan of the super license points for the reason they were bought in, which was there was a time when we talk about pay drivers all the time, but there was a time when a pay, pay driver could just come out of nowhere. And if they had the money, they had the backing, they could just get into F1. That super license points was actually bought in so that even if you are well-funded, you have to at least be competitive in F3, F2, yes. F1. Which, which, by the way, all of the all of the pay drivers and the billionaires now that we make fun of were generally, com- at least some of them were very competitive in lower ranks, but at least, you know. So like even Latifi, you know, when people, you know, people yes. knock Latifi, but, you know, he was competitive enough in Formula 2 and Formula 3 to, to make it to F1. The issue has has which has become clear from the Herta situation is that the FIA massively weighted that behind the FIA kind of pyramid to Formula One, which is obviously F three, F two, F one, and I'm pretty sure that the, the 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 IndyCar points on there are so low that if Herta had joined like the seventh rung of that pyramid, he would have and and had the same results. Yes. In that series, he would have made F one, whereas in IndyCar he didn't. And I think that yes. it's a real disservice to IndyCar to to have them rated like that because. You've got some great drivers there, and there's so many. There's so many drivers you look at, and you're like, man, I wonder. Like Joseph Newgarden won a bunch of championships. Yeah. Obviously, there's you know, there's Scott Dixon who's won a bunch of championships out there, and is you know is considered one of IndyCar's best ever drivers. You always wonder, like, man, I wonder what they could have done if they just had a just had a shot in F1. And right now, like you say, unless they're more competitive, the door is shut. I mean, the other argument is here. I would say is that part of that is if if Herta's results have been better over these seasons, he would be in F1. So at the same time, there is an onus on him to you know, to push, to, to make sure he's in the right team to, to try and win a championship. Um, but yeah, I think it does seem that at this point in time, it seems counterproductive for Formula One to, to shut the door to IndyCar because I think people like those crossovers. They like somebody coming from another series. One of my favorite like drivers growing up was Juan Pablo Montoya. Um, yeah, sure. He came, came from IndyCar, came to F1, and within his second race was, was basically bullying Schumacher out of Turn 1 in Interlagos. And everyone was like, who is this guy? Like... You know, I've, I've I've heard about him, but I've never seen him race. And he just brought in a you know different, a fresh perspective to racing. Um, so it's a shame. Um, so hopefully, Herta can kind of rectify things in 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 the coming years with his points. But it's tough. I think I think that there's it's really split the paddock actually when you talk about it. Some people are like, no, those are the rules. Um, you know, they should they should be kept there. Uh, that's certainly what team bosses were saying. I mean, Gunther Steiner said, you know, he said if 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 you can bend the rules for Colton Herta, we would have gone after different drivers in yeah. the hope of bending the rules for them, which we haven't done in the past. So you could understand the resistance to it. And I think if they had torn up their rules for, for Herta, the whole super license system is, is suddenly in tatters. So I can understand why the FIA did what they did. I wouldn't be surprised if they quietly kind of readjust those points, you know, the next opportunity they get and just say, hey, we've kind of given IndyCar a bit, a bit of a hard time for a few years. Maybe let's give them some more points. But that doesn't seem to be happening, you know, in the immediate, like right now. But I think maybe down the line, you know, give it a year or two, that might happen. Juan Pablo Montoya had five wins, excuse me, seven wins in F1 in five years. And he only had two wins over 255 NASCAR races. Are you ready to make the call that NASCAR is far tougher than F1? Well, I think for him, it was. I remember him saying the, 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 the crossover was difficult. But yeah, I mean, he's one of those guys that he's, you know, he just loves racing and whatever he can get his hands on. He's done, he's done, World Endurance Championship, you know, he's done Le Mans in some of the, not the LMP1 category, but he's done in others. Um, but yeah, Mon- I mean, Montoya is a great example. Montoya is probably one of the, you know, the great what if, like, 
the champion that never was type thing. He he definitely could have been a world champion. He couldn't handle Carl. He couldn't handle Carl Edwards, Tony Stewart. Couldn't handle any of those boys. Matt Kenseth getting bullied. Hey, we're talking about the wrong super license points. We're talking about IndyCar. We need to talk about NASCAR super license. That's right. Yeah, exactly right. He was bullying. He was bullying Schumacher out of turn one, and he couldn't handle Jeff Burton, bro. Come at me. By the way, uh, Latifi in the F in F two in 2019 finished second. Do you know who finished first? So that was that was 19. 19. 2019. Is that was that Nick DeVries? It was Nick DeVries. So there you go. And then Latifi so, stayed in for no no, he got F1, didn't he? The next he year, F1, 2020. F1. That's right. Funny how that works. Yeah, it is funny, isn't it? That he like DeVries is now kind of coming back in and Latifi's, you know, F1 wise is looking pretty washed up now. I wonder what the difference between those two guys is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Let's 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 dive into that, shall we? I mean, dive into some bank account statements. I've always felt sorry for Latifi in 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 that sense because you know he clearly he's clearly a, a talented enough guy to be considered a you know good racing driver. Whether or not he would have had three F one seasons on merit, I don't think so. You know, if he, if he didn't bring that money with him, um, and then also you know everything that happened in Abu Dhabi last year, he probably was he's probably thinking to himself like, well, gee, this isn't worth it. You know the the threats that followed for him but but yeah it's it's just, it's one of the sad things i think alex rossi tweeted i'm going to paraphrase the tweet but he obviously left f1 because rio harianto came in an indonesian driver who was really really well funded at the time and that's kind of one of the things that prompted the super license points and he basically just said like this is the way motor racing's always been the issue isn't uh-huh. isn't colton herter the issue isn't formula one not wanting indycar to come in the issue isn't xyz the issue is the amount of power that drivers with good finances behind them have in terms of getting there. And it's not just, even if you're competitive at a junior level, if you have great funding, it's much easier for you to be more competitive, you know, because of the machinery that you can buy, the the testing. I mean, Nikita Mazepin had a bunch of F1 testing before he came into F1. Lance Stroll was the most prepared F1 rookie ever, they said, when he came in, because his dad basically was able to pay for all these extensive tests for him. So even even being competitive at a junior level, if if you've got that funding, you immediately have a, have a leg up. And, you know, I think that ultimately... It still, it still clearly exists. The fact that money is still a massively, massively important thing. Maybe not as much as it was five, ten years ago, but you're looking at at least four, four, three or four of the drivers on the grid who you think, well, without the money there, would you be in the position you're in right now? And the answer might be no. Hmm. Wow. Um, all right. Let's do Ricardo here because there's a couple, a couple things we need to get to remaining on the grid. And one of them is, is just what he does next year. And I said this last week, but it, you know he has all the options in the world off the track, but on the track, it's getting increasingly small. Um, prediction time: What's he doing this time next year? So I, I think he'll take a year out, um, and that was the mm. thing that that was the one thing I didn't think he was going to do two months ago. You know, when this when this first really became apparent that he wouldn't stay at McLaren, but I think I think early on, it seemed very clear that he wanted that that Alpine made the most sense for them. You know, they were like, we can go and we can race against McLaren, we can kind of battle them on track. Um, and it kept him in Formula One in a you know competitive midfield team. But I think the the appetite from Alpine's side isn't quite what Ricardo and his team maybe thought it was. I think Alpine think that when he left, he wasn't as complimentary about the team as he could have been. You know, he obviously, if you remember, he agreed to leave Al McLaren before we'd actually had a race in 2020. He did it in that in that break f- during during COVID. So they basically came to the season like, well, thanks, man. Like you've 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 basically just said you're leaving us for our main rivals we've even had a race this season so i think that's stung and i think as as the weeks have gone on he's realized that it's either maybe take a bad option and then 
you know, then your career is basically hinging on a car, maybe not being competitive or take a year out. Maybe people forget about a slump of recent past. You become a bit more of a TV star in America. You know, you start doing some things where, you know, you become, you become quite an appealing asset away from Formula One. And then you come straight back into it before the, before kind of the glosses were worn off. I think that that will be what he does. There was talk of the Mercedes reserve driver role. Yeah. I don't think Ricardo wants to be in a position where he comes to every race wearing, wearing a. That, that, that was my thought. That was my thought. Is there, is there a way that he could come to a deal with a team like Mercedes? I mean, there's only two teams like Mercedes. He's not going to come to a deal with Red Bull unless, unless there's some, there's some charity that, you know, charitable, uh, uh, relationship that I, I don't know about between the two. Um, they're more generous than I thought. But uh, is there a way he could just show up for like four races and do some some test drives kind of thing in in Merc gear and and be able to uh, put up some blazing time to just keep people thinking about him in cars for for twenty twenty four? Yeah, definitely. I think that would be a smart way of approaching it. And um, but th- th- then the issue comes: Would Mercedes be willing to do that? You know, give a guy right. you know a handful of races because they'd think, well, what's the what's the end goal here? Are we are we just throwing our money away basically on these tests. Um, I think that the the thing that's interesting from the Mercedes point of view is that getting Ricardo in on that reserve driver role would put a bit of pressure on Lewis in terms of, you know, are you going to extend sure. at the earliest possible point? But Mercedes have never really been about putting Lewis under pressure. If you remember, he went into the off season um, at the start of 2021 without a deal. You know, he basically was like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to, sorry, sorry, this, this off season, we didn't yeah. know if he'd signed his new contract until about March time. So Mercedes have never really been about like, hey, we, you know, you have to, we, you have to commit to us going forward. So the, the testing idea for him would be ideal, but I think with Mercedes it would be all or nothing. You know, you can't, you can't just sign up for a handful of races. We want you to be in the, the reserve role, like Giovinazzi's been in with Ferrari. We, we want you to become a valuable part of the team. You're doing a lot of simulator work, helping us win races, helping us improve. Uh, and ultimately, I don't know whether that's what Ricardo wants to do because I think, I think. It's one thing taking a year out and saying, I'm a Formula One driver who's on a sabbatical. And it's another thing saying, I'm a reserve driver in Formula One. The perception then is Daniel Ricciardo is a reserve driver. Daniel Ricciardo is a backup for Mercedes. Whereas if he leaves and just sits the year out, it's like, no, he's a racing driver. still an F1 driver and he wants to come back to a racing driver. So um, that's to me where I, I think he'll go. From conversations I've had with you know, people at McLaren, people close to Ricciardo, that seems to be the more logical option. But I think... The interesting thing is he's not really ruled any option out. You know, he's kind of kept everything open. So it could be that, you know, something starts to appeal to him in a week or so where he's like, actually, you know what, maybe maybe I join this team. I, I always love the idea of him going to Haas, but I, I just don't think that that's, you know, a team that I think he looks at it and he's like, as fun as that might be from the outside, is that really going to enhance my career going forward? And the answer is maybe not. Um, and ultimately, I think that's what he wants is a, is a, is a move that kind of revives his career. And um, I'm not sure if any of the teams available right now given that can, can you uh take me through so paul Duresta is a mercedes it was one of the Merce- one of the three mercedes reserve drivers couldn't he could he do could ricardo do like a, i'm a reserve driver but i'm also a pundit unless they need me kind of thing yeah so i think that might be end- what he ends up kind of doing is is okay. having some kind of role where and look and i don't want to rule out the the possibility of him being affiliated with mercedes in any way um because i think mercedes this year have de Vries and van dorn I'm not sure if the I'm not sure if the rest is still there. You might be right. He might still be. I'm seeing listings of many many of the rest of it might just be a procedural thing. Maybe he's just on the books. Potentially, he, I mean, he definitely like he stepped in for Felipe Massa a few years ago when Massa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but that, but yeah, that was that was some time ago now. But but yeah, so you know, Mercedes have always liked to have kind of different options, and I think for drivers, it is 
a lot more appealing to be able to say, right, I'll sign six deals, set a six race deal with you. Cause then of course they can go and do something else. So that's why they've kind of, they've done that before. So he, he, he definitely could. And it would make sense, wouldn't it? If he's coming back and doing some punditry, then he's like, Hey, I'm in, you know, I'm in the paddock. I'll bring my helmet with me. If you guys need yeah, me. Yeah. I'll bring, I'll bring my, uh, my, uh, my Texas Longhorns helmet with me just in case. I'll bring, I'll bring my shoeies and I'll, uh, you know, I'll be ready to race if you need me. Um, so that could happen, but I don't know. It, I, the, the sense I got, and this is just me kind of interpreting conversations I've had, the sense I got is that the appetite for him to do that isn't, you know, isn't really that strong. So I might be wrong. You know, he might, he might look at it and think, actually, this makes a lot of sense with what he's doing next year. But I get the impression that right now he's got a lot of opportunities outside of F1 to explore. I think there were you know, lots of exciting things. And I think those are potentially going to take up some of his attention in the next few months. Um, but, uh, but yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens. Definitely. It would be such a shame if this is it for Danny Rick, wouldn't it? If, if we didn't get him back. Yeah. But we, I, I, I can assure you he's not going to leave our lives. With, yeah, exactly. Like he might be a bigger part of our lives going forward. Yeah. I think whatever happens, I think he's going to be, he's going to be very present in the formula one space. I can, I can, I can, I can imagine that um, because he's just such a personality. And I think to be honest, and this is going to sound really, really cruel, but I think as soon as people, as soon as a lot of you know media companies saw the McLaren statement that, you know, Danny Rick's not staying, a lot of them probably thought this is gold for us because this guy's now available. You know, he's, he clearly wants to stay involved in Formula One in some way. Um, so yeah, I think he's going to, I think you're right. I think he's going to be very, very involved. Uh, all right. Is there any storyline for the 2023 season that we need to be keeping an eye on? Is there anything like, okay, no one is talking about this, but we need to, uh, that we're going to be talking about in six months. Well, so a quote that really grabbed my attention recently was, um, Dan Fallows who's one of the aerodynamicists who left Red Bull for Aston Martin said mm. the team right now reminds him of Red Bull in about 2005, 2006. And so I don't think maybe not the talk, talking point in six months or so, but maybe in a year, because I think Aston Martin, their trajectory short term is pretty, you know, it's pretty clear they're not going to massively improve overnight. But it is something we're not talking about enough is that they've obviously signed Fernando. They've, bought, they've, they've, they've stolen a lot of people from Red Bull. They've been able to offer a lot of money to a lot of people. Um, and slowly, quietly, they seem to be trying to build something. And I think that the talking point goes one of two ways, because when you do all of that, if they're still in the situation they're in now, in 12 months' time, I think that it's going to look awful. And I think that the whole project kind of starts to stall and fall apart. If mm -hmm. we see some real improvements, suddenly people look at Aston Martin and say, well, actually, maybe, you know, they've built this new facility at Silverstone, their headquarters, like maybe this team is a force to be reckoned with in a few years' time. Um, but I think that that over the next year is going to be really interesting to keep to keep an eye on. And it's and because Aston Martin, because they've not really been, they've not really done anything since they became Aston Martin. I've noticed. Yeah, exactly. It's easy to just forget that they're there. But in terms of storylines, we're not talking about that kind of. It's like, what are they building exactly? Are they building the next Red Bull, or are they just building another team that spent way too much money in F1 and ultimately didn't achieve anything? Yeah, I was going to ask because obviously Aston Martin is an iconic car brand, but it doesn't have that history doesn't have much to do with the current team. And I know Lawrence Stroll has talked about building his own engine and becoming more of almost a, a works team. Um, is that realistic going forward? Is that why they hired those guys is to become that? Or is that just kind of ambitious talk? Kind of like when a, you know, a soccer club says we're going to make the champions league when they're fourth in the championship. Yeah. I think it's a bit of the latter. I think, um, okay. I mean, Red, Red Bull are kind of blazing that path though, you know, with their whole powertrain. Yes, of course. Thing. So I think that, if you're Lawrence Stroll, you're looking at that and you're thinking, all right, I'm bringing over guys from Red Bull now who probably have the know-how of, you know, how that process started. So I wouldn't rule it out with someone like Lawrence Stroll. You know, he's got the money certainly to do it and he's got the ambition to turn it 
to turn his team into something like that. So if it was most other people, if it was me and you, I'd be like, look, Kevin, I'd be like, look, Kevin Clark, he means well, but that's, that's just him. That's just him hyping it up. But if it's Lawrence, yeah. Stroll, you're like, well, he's got the money and he's, he's shown us he's not, he's not afraid to spend that money in formula one to be successful. So I can see that happening. I, I don't think it would be anytime soon, but you know, the, the rules are changing in 2026 and it might be that he looks at it and says, well, hang on, like maybe, maybe if we do what Red Bull's done, we'll be up there with them winning championships, winning races, et cetera. So I wouldn't want to rule it out, but it definitely seems very unlikely right now. Hmm. All right. Uh, final thing for you. What are you watching the rest of the year? Because the driver's championship is over. I guess the constructor's championship, there's some intrigue about Ferrari versus Mercedes. And then obviously the middle of the pack where there's always some intrigue, but obviously that's all sort of qualified week to week. You're zeroed in on what Nate Saunders. So there's a few things right now. One of them is Mick Schumacher, because I think that he has impressed Haas enough over the past few races that the conversation is no longer who are we replacing Mick with next year. It's are we continuing with Mick next year or are we going to go with Giovinazzi or Hulkenberg? And I think while the car isn't there in terms of race results, his qualifying performances have been pretty good. Um, there's obviously the McLaren Alpine battle, which you know is is really important for both those teams. You know when you talk about the prize money involved. Um, and there's the added part of it now with the Piastri saga. I feel like Alpine, like the, all they want to do now is like, let's just beat McLaren to fourth. We've got to do that for our own kind of egos going forward. Um, I mean, there's all, there's all kinds of things. There's a few guys that you look at and have got new contracts, but maybe are going into next year into in- interesting circumstances. So Sonoda is one who's got this new deal, but has maybe not had, you know, it's never felt like he's always, sometimes you're like, do, do AlphaTauri really believe in this guy? And now he maybe is going into next year. He might be a team leader if Gasly goes to Alpine. Mm-hmm. So lots of different things, man. I mean, it's always interesting when the championship finishes, the the focus on races does shift lower down. And um, I mean, you, you mentioned we're not doing Mercedes Ferrari so much, but if Russell can finish ahead of Lewis Hamilton, I mean, that's pretty rare for someone to do that in terms of the championships. Not many teammates can say they've done that. So that would be huge for Russell as well. So lots of little things that, that keep things bubbling over. But I mean, I'm... I'm quite old fashioned in the, in the sense that when the championship finishes, part of the part of the thrill of the season does die a little bit for me. I've got to say, and I think that it is going to be interesting with this new American kind of lens on Formula One. What does F1 do going forward? I wonder if you've got any thoughts on that. But in terms of making the end of the season more enjoyable, or if that's even needed? No, no, no. Oh my God! Wait, so Na- so like NASCAR tried this, and it it ruined a whole batch of competitive aspect of the sport. I mean, like, boy, I, I really, I mean, that that's the, putting the chase for the championship as a, I think they initially called it. I don't, I think it's just called the chase or NASCAR playoffs, whatever you want to call it now. Um, the reason I don't know what the phrase is because no one really talks about it, but they put it. I was, I was going to say that is quite telling, isn't it? When you yeah. don't immediately say, I know what it is. They put, they put it opposite football season and you can't do anything like golf changed their calendar a couple of years ago, the PGA to just get all of its competitive stuff out of the way the week before football starts. Um, you know, the NBA doesn't really ramp up until Christmas because they need football to start winding down college and pro. Cause if, if you're a European listener, college football plays on Saturday, that's the second most popular sport in the, in America pro football, which is, I mean, a random, a random Bengals Ravens game gets higher ratings um, than than baseball's World Series. Okay, um, the Pro Bowl, which everybody hates, which is a glorified All Star game, which the owner of Chelsea is trying to implement into soccer, 
Which the uh, over here, just as a side note, has been hilarious because so many of my friends are like, "What? What does this guy think he's doing?" And I'm like, "I'm like, if it's anything like the Pro Bowl in the NFL, it won't happen." Well, they got rid of the Pro Bowl yesterday. It's over. Yeah, yeah. The Pro Bowl's done. Flag football thing now, isn't it? It's a flag football thing produced by Peyton Manning. And so, uh, but that gets higher ratings than like anything. That's like the, you know, that's like the 15th most watched thing or whatever. Like the, the, I think that there are 48, I think of the 50 top American TV shows last year, I think 48 were NFL football games, something like that. And may, maybe a little less. Um, but, it, but during NFL season, it is, it is that ratio of 48 of 50. Um, but over the course of the season, I think like the NCAA March Madness gets up there, whatever. Anyway, point being, so NASCAR puts their championship during this time period. They, they have incre- like the, they they've tried to gamify it and get people excited. They used to have it uh, actually in Homestead. The final was in Homestead, and I lived in Miami during that time period. And there was no buzz. It was it was the finale, and there was no buzz. And you you know people clinched there and all that stuff. And I could not get anybody to to care about it. Um, and so I think that uh, F one trying to gamify the end of the season i i don't i don't think that has i mean i would actually be more intrigued nate if they actually went the other way and the teams who are out of it started to plan for 2023 in a way that intrigued me what i mean by that is like give logan Sargent gets a williams drive next week i'm watching that do you know what i'm saying like that that to me is more intriguing than just like how do we make ferrari versus mercedes more competitive going forward yeah, and that's a good point, isn't it? Because a lot of American sports, what you have is the benefit of knowing, okay, this team's doing badly. But again, the lens is then on the following season. It's like, well, their draft pick will be better and they can do this, they can do that. So um, I think that that is definitely something that F1's lent into as well with the um, wind tunnel time. You know, obviously if you finish 10th, you get the most wind tunnel time the following season. But it is it, that, that would be a great idea if you kind of get a joker, kind of, you're like, we'll, we'll sign this guy next year. We're going to get a third car this weekend or something. He's going to race with us. And it would be so much more buzz. Think about if th- think about if Nick DeVries would had signed for a team next year and had that result, and we got to say, "Ooh, oh boy!" Like here we go. You know what I'm saying? Like that to me is the most would be the most interesting thing. Is you start thinking about 2023 next. The reason American sports have figured out so well how to market hope. Is that they've realized the, the the inactivity is more important than the activity, right? Like free agency, all of that stuff. And so, in or if you could market that stuff on the track by saying this guy's got a deal next year, here he is. Or even I know, I mean, I don't even know the way this would work. But like, even let's say Colton Herta can't get the super license points to drive. Could he actually? He couldn't even do a race. Is that correct? He couldn't. Okay. He couldn't race. He couldn't take part in a like quote unquote competitive session. Yeah. All right. Nate's honors. We've kept you for a long time. Thank you so much, buddy. This has been so much fun. Check out his pod on ESPN. He's not going to Singapore. No, not going to Singapore, but uh, I'll be messaging you throughout the race. Absolutely. What, how, how, how are the Bucks looking? Uh, I'm still not convinced if Brady should come back. Uh, I don't know. It just, the team's, the team's not where it was two years ago. Right. So I don't know. What do you think? You, you, you're more, you're more tuned in. Oh, no, you Oh no, you're you're the you're the football expert. I'm just I'm the I'm just the F1 guy, Nate. <laughs> I'm just the F1 pod guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just the F1 guy. A quick okay. aside about that, which is really funny. I did I did a um, radio show in the UK recently, and I said to them, "Oh come on, um, they, they were like we're doing a sports hour. Do you want to talk about F1?" I was like, "Yeah, but only F1 because you know I don't I don't know my stuff on other stuff." The first question I got asked was about Leicester City, 
in the Premier League. Yeah, and I was like, yeah. and I was like, oh yeah, you know, I'm live on. <laughs> Second question was about England's cricket team, and I was like, oh yeah, I mean, you know, great. So I had to like bumble my way through that. So um, we, we get that. I was actually joking about that last week with somebody. I was joking about somebody last week where you sometimes you go on local radio uh, in in America and you'll go like. I don't know, like when the Browns were bad or something, you go on Cleveland radio and this is kind of universal for every NFL writer and they'll be like, ah, oh, you know, what do you think about the, uh, the offensive line? And it'll be like December 3rd and you're just like, the Browns are like, you know, one and nine and you're just like, I don't, like, I don't know who's hurt. I don't know. I don't know. Like, I, I've got, I'm, I'm more worried about like 15 teams and the Browns aren't one of them. And so you just have to generalize as much as possible and just like be like, well, you know, Bill Callahan's coaching that offensive line. And I know Bill Callahan's going to figure that out. You know, you just make it as broad as possible and don't name anybody because you have no idea who's hurt or, 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 you know, isn't playing this week or is in the doghouse. So that was exactly it with me. I was, I've never been convinced I could go into politics until I did that radio interview. So that basically taught me like you can, you can talk your way around anything. So now I've kept you too long, dude. Great chance. All right. Nate Saunders. Thank you so much. Check him out. This has been the Ringer F1 show on the Ringer podcast network. Thank you to Erica Cervantes for production help with additional production supervision by Julia Levin. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side-by-side. Side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios Kingdom and the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom and the Planet of the Apes, enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now.